0: I don't uh, know how many of you have ever heard of Harry A. Ironside. He's a great uh, preacher from the earlier part of this century. I think he died in about 1951. But Dr. Ironside is also the man who mentored Ray Steadman. As a young man, Ray would uh, uh, follow Ironside around, carry his luggage, watch what he did, listen to him. Now, some of you may not know who Ray Steadman is. Ray is a man who greatly influenced my father, but he's also the man who mentored David Roper. So I look at uh, Dr. Ironside as my uh, spiritual great-grandfather. I still enjoy reading his sermons. One time, uh, Dr. Ironside was addressing a a group of uh, Roman Catholic believers, and he asked them, he said, Have any of you seen a real saint? And they all were shaking their heads, No. He said, would you like to? And they all started shaking their heads, yes. And so he said, okay, take a look. Here I am, St. Harry. And he took them to uh, one of the verses we're going to be looking at this morning. First, are in Philippians 1. See, biblically, he was right. He is a saint. In fact, uh, you guys are all looking at a saint. St. Chris. I don't know how to take that laughter. (laughs) But actually, I am uh, looking at saints, a lot of saints. Saint Carol, Saint Roger, Saint Greg and Jane, Saint Sharon. Now it sounds funny to us to have saints stuck at the beginning of our names, but rest assured, it doesn't sound funny at all to God, because He's made us saints. You know, we look at our lives and we don't feel particularly saintly. Culturally, we expect a saint to be something more than us, something more uh, spiritual, more holy, more giving, just different than you and me. In fact, in our culture, it can even be an insult to be uh, told that you think you're a saint, don't you? Well, this morning we're going to look at a passage that's all about sainthood. What it is, uh, what it looks like, uh, how it's attained, how it's maintained, where it leads. This morning we're going to start our study through the book of Philippians. It's one of my favorite books of all time. Just such a delightful book. So full of joy. So full of of God's love and Paul's love for these Philippians. Every time I read this book, I I think of you guys. I think of this church. And uh, that makes me excited. That's why I'm excited to to study this book. Actually, it's not so much a book as it is a letter, a letter from Paul to believers, to Christians who lived in Philippi in what was Macedonia, now it's part of Greece. About uh, 62 A.D. is when Paul wrote this while he was sitting in a prison cell in, in Rome. Ten or twelve years before that... Uh, Paul had gone to Philippi, and there a, a businesswoman by the name of Lydia had become a believer, the first believer in all of Europe. And she invited Paul and Silas to come and stay in her house. And from there, Paul and Silas went out and continued to share the gospel, and gathered more and more people, and a church began to meet in Lydia's house. But uh, this uh, uh, having people come to the Lord was affecting uh, some business interests in the town people's lives were being changed. They weren't doing the same stuff they used to do. They weren't buying the same things they used to buy. And as a result, the uh, the uh, kind of business establishment had Paul and Silas arrested, beaten, thrown in prison. While they were in prison, the the guard became a believer and went on to to uh, share the gospel, some say perhaps even as far as the uh, Praetorium in Rome. The next morning, the uh, city officials came to let Paul and Sent to let Paul and Silas out of prison, and Paul said, no way. You put us in prison, you had us beaten, arrested with no trial. If you want us out, you've got to come and take us out by way of apology to publicly release us. Because this is no way to treat Roman citizens. And when the city officials heard that they were Roman citizens, they panicked, they got very afraid. You see, Philippi was a Roman city. It had a very special status known as Lus Italicum. That was that Philippi was treated as if it were on Italian soil. A Citizen of Philippi was by just the fact of being a citizen of Philippi also a citizen of Rome. That wasn't true. Of most cities, that was a very rare status, and and so they they valued that status, and they were very afraid of anything that might jeopardize that special relationship with Rome. That's why when they heard that Paul was a Roman citizen, it frightened them. You now Paul uses this later on in chapter three to illustrate um, just the the, the 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 truth of of. Us being, as he puts it, our real citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a Savior. See, the fact that these people lived in Greece, yet legally and technically were citizens of Rome, was a great illustration of how we live on this earth, but legally and technically we are citizens of heaven with all of the the privileges and prerogatives and responsibilities that that involves. Anyway, the the city officials, they're all upset, and so they beg Paul to to just leave quietly. Don't stir up any more trouble. Don't get us in trouble, please. And so Paul, after a very brief time in Philippi, leaves town. The church there continues to grow and to develop and mature. And these people become very precious, very dear to Paul. They even begin to support him financially as he goes to other cities, like we support our our field staff going out from here to continue to, to, to spread the gospel. Paul loves these people. These people really love Paul. But there were some things that were happening. Some some problems. The main thing being just a growing sense of, of discouragement. A sense of defeat among them. Their, 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 their leader, Paul, sitting in a prison cell, taken out of commission. There were other people coming into town, starting other churches. And they seemed to be in competition. And these folks uh, began to, to become discouraged some of these other groups were saying bad things about them. Some of their leaders were not getting along. A couple of key leaders, uh, two women by the name of Yodi and Sintiki, they started bickering among themselves. And there was, a, there was a growing tension and a splitting in the church. So all of these things were happening. And Paul writes this letter to express his love and affection for them, but also to help them work through some of these problems, some of these discouragements, some of the, the fruit of discouragement in their, in their body. Well, again, you know, even though perhaps not so dramatically, at times I feel a sense of discouragement here. Sometimes we're, we're feeling defeated. We're, we're struggling to, to grab a hold of our vision as well. And so, again, I feel like God has written, had this written for us today. Well, Paul begins with a fairly normal salutation, letting them know who the letter is from. That's how they started their letter. We put it on the end. They put it right up front so you know who you're listening to. He says in verse one, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now Paul's actually the guy writing the letter, but he includes Timothy. Timothy's a young man that Paul is mentoring and training to continue the ministry. In fact, he's going to send, he plans to send Timothy to Philippi later on to follow up the letter, see how things are going. And he identifies the two of them as servants of God. Now, in every other letter that Paul wrote, except for the letters to the Thessalonians, he also identifies himself as an apostle. But here he doesn't include that. And I think the reason for that is, is that in these other situations, Paul needs them to know that he is an apostle. And therefore he has a a responsibility and the authority to write them. And they have a responsibility to listen. But in this situation with the Philippians, he knows they're going to listen because they love him. Not just because he's an apostle. So he doesn't need to include that. Referring to himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. Paul is saying something very important about himself. He's saying that he is absolutely, entirely owned. The word servant in our language means an employee, somebody who takes care of the house or somebody who works for us in some domestic capacity. The word that he uses here doesn't mean that. It means a slave. Paul is owned by. By Jesus Christ. He was bought with a price. Because he belongs so completely to Jesus Christ, he can never ultimately belong to anything or anyone else, at least in that total sense. Paul views himself this way. This is his identity. And this is very freeing. We as Americans have an aversion to uh, looking at ourselves as owned. We want to be our own man, our own woman. We're free. Nobody owns us. Well, when it comes to politics, I, uh, I am for freedom. I agree. We don't want to be owned. But belonging to no one is not true freedom. That's loneliness. That's isolation. There's no nobility in that. The way to truly be free is to belong to the one who sets us free. To take His yoke upon us, that's the way we get rid of our burdens. You know, it's one of those seeming contradictions of scripture. That the way to truly become free is to become a slave. A slave of Jesus Christ. To be owned completely by Him. And instead of being a, a bummer, as the enemy would make it seem, that's really the way to find clarity and, and, and purpose and, and order in our lives. We've already made up our minds that no matter what the situation, no matter what the circumstances, we will obey Him. He's our master. And though we, we forget about that commitment, we withdraw that commitment at times. To the degree that we hold to that commitment, our lives are ordered and healthy. The key is, is belonging to Him. I became a believer uh, in my late teens. I knew the truth long before that. I uh, had grown up in a Christian home but I always felt that it, it, to really give God control of my life, it would be a bummer. It would ruin my life. It would cut into too many things. So I resisted and I resisted. And, and during that time, I was very rebellious. I uh, did not honor my parents. I uh, got in a lot of fights. But then when I finally took on Christ's yoke upon me, I gave Him control of my life. I gave up and, and let Him have my life. I discovered freedom that I never even knew existed, that I never expected. Now this may sound funny to some of you who haven't tried it, but I found the freedom not to fight. Before that, I'd always seemed like when somebody hurts you, you've got an obligation. Somehow I was constrained to hurt back. But in Christ, I found the freedom not to do that. I found the freedom to honor my parents. I could put aside what I wanted to do to please them. I realized that some of these things that I thought I didn't want to do, I really didn't have the freedom to do. And now that I experienced that freedom in Christ, it was a delight. It was a joy. It was truly a freedom to belong to Him. You see, belonging is a basic need. Belonging to a family, belonging to a community, a church. But most fundamentally, belonging to God. Completely. There's no disgrace in that. In fact, in the Old Testament, that is the the, the greatest title ever bestowed on anyone. To be a servant of Yahweh, a servant of God. That was the title that was given to Moses and to Joshua and to David and to Jeremiah. See, that was and that is the greatest honor that can be shown any man or woman to be a servant of God, a servant of Christ Jesus. Paul then uh, goes on to include the address. He says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. And here Paul uses that term saint. He says to all the saints. Now he's not talking to just this uh, the saints that happen to be sprinkled among the rest of the normal everyday believers there in Philippi. He uses the term for all of the saints, all of the believers, all of the Christians. The, the terms are synonymous. That word saint means holy one. In other contexts, it's translated holy. See, and the term holy or the term saint means something or someone that is set aside for a special use. In the Old Testament, there were a lot of things that were referred to as holy. There were the, the holy stones that, that were used to build the altar. I realized these were just ordinary old rocks. There was nothing special about these stones. What made them special was that they were dedicated to the worship of Yahweh. They were set aside to be used only for God's worship. The Holy Temple in Jerusalem was not bigger or better than temples around. There were other nations that had grander and more majestic and impressive temples. But that temple was holy because it was set aside for a special purpose for the worship of Yahweh, worship of God. That's what made it holy. And these saints in Philippi, they were saints, they were holy, not because they were better than other people. But because in Christ, God had set them aside for a special purpose. In fact, uh, what Paul says about them being saints and himself being a servant of God are really synonymous. They mean the same thing. They belong to God for His purposes, for His special reasons and His special purposes. And if you are in Christ, if you've put your trust in Him, given your life to Him, look to Him for your relationship with God and for your eternal future, then you too are a saint. Now, the problem we have with this, we look at our lives, our attitudes, our behavior, and they don't seem so saintly. They don't seem so holy. Maybe they're not terrible, but they're not all that wonderful either. You know, again, we expect a saint to be something different, something more. The fact is, being a saint is not a function of behaving holy, as James Boyce puts it. It's true that one who is a saint in the biblical sense will strive to be holy. But his holiness, however little or however great it may be, does not make him a saint. He is a saint because he has been set apart by God. Period. That's what makes us saints. Well, in verse two, Paul greets them. He says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul does is he takes two typical greetings of the day and he sticks them together. He takes the uh, greeting, the the Greek greeting, what two Greek guys would say to each other when they walked up to each other. "Karis, grace. And then he takes the typical Hebrew greeting, peace, shalom. And he sticks the two together uh, as, as a greeting, but also as a statement. You see, everyone wants peace. They want peace with God, but more they want the peace inside of themselves that comes from peace with God. And this can only be attained by grace, by God's undeserved grace. Now, it's redundant, unnecessary to say undeserved grace. Because the the meaning of the word grace means undeserved favor. You see, God's grace is not deserved. That's just part of the meaning of the word. But we have to remind ourselves of that over and over and over again. Because that's the one thing in life we have so much trouble getting a grip on. We so quickly begin to to think that God's favor rests on our performance, our behavior, or our giftedness, or or our faithfulness in, in reading our Bibles or praying. Rather than realizing, no, grace is undeserved. It can't be deserved or it stops being grace. Now this is one of the hardest concepts. To hold on to, I'd say the majority of counseling I do is is to people who are hurting because they failed, because they they've been uh, they've compromised in their walk with God, and they're feeling the weight, uh, feeling the shame, feeling the unworthiness that God they don't deserve God's love. Well, that's what grace is all about. We don't deserve it. We do fail. We hurt each other. He still loves us. In fact, until we face the fact that we don't deserve it, that we are unworthy, then we're in no position to receive it. But once we look at and see that it is not deserved, that we cannot earn it, then we're in the perfect place to accept it as His free gift and to celebrate it, to give Him glory because He is that loving, that good, that wonderful. But again, we've got to remind ourselves of these things constantly. I've shared this with you before, but I have a letter I wrote to myself in 1976. And I take this letter, and I stick it in my file cabinet. And when I'm looking for something, I'll run across it, pull it out, and say, hey, what's this? And it's my letter, and I'll read it and remind myself of the things that it says. And then I'll stick it someplace else, so I'll run across it again. not a real sharp guy, so I'm always surprised (laughs) whenever I run into it. Let me read just a couple of lines from it. Right now, I have everything I need for total happiness. I need no more Bible study. I need no more fellowship. I need no more money. I need no more sleep. I need no better house or car or stereo. I need no less sin. I need no less fears. Right now, in the midst of all this, I have peace with God through the grace of Jesus Christ. He has given me all that I need. He has given me the privilege of being in His presence, of being with the one I love. I can be still and know that He is God. All else is insignificant compared to this incredible gift. See, real peace comes only from grace. Well, next Paul goes on to tell them uh, his prayers for them. That's what the rest of our passage this morning is all about. Paul first describes how he prays, and then he describes what he prays. Starting in verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you and all of my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul says that every time that he thinks of them, he prays for them. And he prays for them with joy. And he thanks God for them. Doesn't just worry and fret. Let me recommend this to you. You see, these Philippians were not perfect. They had some real problems. And there were problems going on in their church. And there were some divisions developing. And there were folks in that church who had some real questions about Paul. They were irritated with Paul. They felt that Paul had kind of abandoned them. And and they were were struggling with Paul. Paul, sitting in that prison cell, he doesn't fume and worry and say, I wonder how they're doing. I wonder if, if they're okay. I wonder what they're thinking about me. I wonder if they like me. Now, Paul doesn't let his mind go with those things. He stopped and he prays for them and he thanks God for them. Let me recommend that for the people that you love, who you know closely. You're going to know things about them that might frighten you. You're going to have questions about them that may make you wonder. And the enemy would like to take those things and to breed fear and anxiety and suspicion. He'd love to do that among us, the people that we love here. Let me call on you. Instead of letting the enemy cause you to worry and fret and and fear and suspect, pray for each other. Pray for the people you love and thank God for them. Paul goes on to say that the the very thought of them brings him joy. He really likes these people. He really feels bonded with these people. Now why? He says, in view of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, term there that Paul uses for partnership. There's a term that, that, that we usually translate fellowship. See, fellowship is a very rich term in Scripture. The basic meaning is to share something, like you take your peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you tear it in half, and you give half to somebody. That is fellowship. It also carries the connotation, the, 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 the feeling of camaraderie that comes from sharing something. And what these people shared together was the gospel. That is, first of all, they responded to the gospel themselves. of Who Jesus Christ, what he had done on the cross, what that meant in their relationship with God, and what that meant in their relationship with each other. And then their sharing in the gospel moved to taking that good news, that freedom to know God, have your life affected, to others who had not yet heard See, they were committed together to doing this. This is why they supported Paul. This is why they worked together. They're on the same team. They're working for the same ends, the same goals. That's what Paul's talking about in verse 7. He says, It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. see, that kind of affection, that kind of fellowship, really is a a product of of working together, of having the same goals, the same desires. What breeds this kind of fellowship is a commitment to the same Lord and to His purposes. That's key to any fellowship. Key to our fellowship. And then when Paul is talking about uh, his defending and confirming the gospel, that term "defend" apologia can also, uh, and in this case probably more more realistically, be called be uh, translated "explain." See, Paul's talking about he explains the gospel to those who have not yet responded, and then he confirms the gospel in those who are already believers. To confirm the gospel means to help. Work it into your life to understand the effects of the good news of who Jesus Christ is and His grace and His love in every area of your life, in every relationship of your life. Confirming the gospel, the way we confirm the gospel in each other is to explore with each other what it means in our our everyday lives and relationships. See, commitment to these goals of responding to the gospel and confirming the gospel among us and taking the gospel to others who have not yet heard. These goals are really the the foundation blocks of building a deep and a delightful fellowship among us. A sense of teamwork, of being on the same team. Quite a few years ago, I was speaking at a conference in Zimbabwe. And uh, I I was one of two whites in a conference of about uh, 300 people. This was during the Civil War in that country which was largely an issue between the white Rhodesians and the black Zimbabweans. Even though I had virtually nothing in common with these people that I was, was ministering with, nothing ethnically or culturally or economically or socially or even politically, we were miles apart. But still, these were my brothers in Christ. We had the same Lord, the same goal to make Him known. And as a result... We had a very sweet fellowship. In a very brief period of time, we grew to love and respect each other. There was a profound delight in that fellowship. You see, fellowship really isn't based on having life situations in common. It's not just based on being in the same place at the same time. Real fellowship is based on our our, our love for our commitment to our Lord, Jesus Christ and are working together, being on the same team. You know, the fellowship that develops on a, on a football team or, a, or, or a, 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 a platoon in the army isn't because everybody in there is such wonderful uh, character and nice guys. It's because they're working together. They're committed together to accomplishing the goal, to follow in the same leadership. Again, that's the basis of our fellowship, working together to follow our Lord Jesus Christ. Working together to take the good news of Him to those who have not heard it and to build it into our own lives. You know, here at this church, we come from all different kinds of backgrounds, socially and economically. We've got executives and laborers and civil servants and, and uh, entrepreneurs. We've got all kinds of, uh, of life situations. We've got married, we've got single, different ages different circumstances in life. But the thing that holds us together is we have the same Lord and the same goal. And to the degree that Jesus Christ is our Lord and that we are seeking Him and His kingdom, to that degree, our fellowship will deepen, become profound. That's the basis of my excitement about this church. As I said, when I read this book, I I think of you guys And I am constantly encouraged... By your commitment to the gospel. I see it in, in your giving to the ministries of this church and to the field staff, and the missionaries. I see it in the number of you involved in sharing the gospel with your friends and your family, people at work. I see it in the number of you involved in the ministries of this church, which are focused on confirming the gospel, helping people understand the freedom they have in Christ in, in every area of their life, in all of their, 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 their emotions and, and, and their relationships but as encouraged as I am by all of you, let me call on more of you to that commitment. For some of you, this may be a new commitment. To others, it may be a renewed commitment. But it's basically a commitment to three things. First of all, to responding to the gospel yourself, letting Jesus Christ be your Lord and Master. Secondly, taking that gospel out to those who've not yet responded to it. And third. Being involved in developing a loving community of believers here that is confirming the gospel, helping each other really understand what it means in our lives. You see, these are our goals worth being dedicated to. These are goals worth your passionate commitment. These are our goals because we love Jesus Christ and these are His goals. These are an expression of our desire to be his servants. Well, in talking about verses 7 and 8, I entirely skipped over one of the greatest verses of the whole Bible, verse 6. Let me read it. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. See, Paul is explaining why he can be so positive, so. Joyful when he thinks of them with all the problems, all the things that are going on. Paul says, the reason I can be that way is my confidence isn't in you guys. I love you guys, but my confidence isn't in you. It's in God who made you saints in the first place and he was going to finish that job. He's going to make you like his son, Jesus Christ. He's not going to stop till it's done. See, that's where Paul's confidence is and that's why he can be so joyful and and positive. Quite honestly, that's our security. That's our confidence as well. You know, we fail. We forget about God. We leave Him out of our lives. We hurt each other. and It's so easy to become discouraged with ourselves, with each other. But we need to remember, it's God that makes us saints in the first place. And He's going to finish the job in each one of our lives. He's going to make us like His Son, Jesus Christ. And rather than becoming discouraged with ourselves and with each other, let's renew our trust in Him to finish what He started. That's what faith is all about, putting our confidence, our trust in Him. Now, it may sound like that means we don't really have any part in it. Well, that's not true. Several years back when I was involved with the college ministry, I took a group of the leaders down to Colorado to a camp down there, a training camp. And one of the the, uh, team building, the confidence building exercises they took us through was rock climbing. tore all the skin off all of my fingertips trying to climb this crack in the rock. I discovered that my uh, center of gravity is somewhere back here, rather than up against the face of that rock. But as we're climbing, you got a harness on and a rope, and the rope goes through a carabiner at the very top of the cliff, goes back down, and there's a guy on the ground called a belayer holding on to that rope. And as you work your way up, every time you fall, he holds on to that rope. He's been keeping it somewhat tight, and so when you fall, you don't fall very far. You hang there for a while, good grip, and you start climbing again. Then when you get to the top, that's when the fun part comes. You get to repel back down that cliff. Well, that's the fun part, but it's also the terrifying part. Because in order to repel, you've got to lean back, perpendicular to the rock, parallel to the ground, just hanging out there over nothing. You've got to trust that belayer on the end of the rope enough to hold you, so that you're parallel, and your feet are solid on the rock. And then you jump out, and he lets you down, your feet hit, and you jump out a little more, and he works you to the ground that way. Well, when you become frightened, and you lean in, you lose your feet. They fall out from under, and you smash against the rock. Skin your knees, bruise your hands. And that guy's just got to hold you there until you get your courage up and lean back out again. And he starts letting you down the rock. Well, again, like that belayer, God is going to get us down the rock. He's going to get us to the ground. And as we trust Him and lean on Him, He's going to do it. He's going to work us down. When He says jump, we jump. And He lets us down the rock. you got no choice. You're on the rock. you got to get down. Life's going to keep coming at you. It only makes sense to trust Him. And to let him get us down the rock, and to save our skin. Well, finally, let's take a look at what uh, Paul prays for them. Verse nine he says, "And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best." and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Paul prays that God would take the love that they already have started expressing. They've already started growing in their ability to love each other. Paul is excited about that. Paul has seen that. Paul has felt that. He's been the recipient of that kind of love. And so he wants to encourage it more and more for it to grow and grow. You see, that's what our Christian life is all about. Learning to love like God loves. Learning to love like Christ loves. Expressing that love. Paul says for that love to keep growing, for that love to mature, develop, it needs to be accompanied by knowledge and insight. See, in fact, without knowledge and insight, it can be a very dangerous thing. I... uh, Had a friend, a guy that I knew uh, when I was in a ministry down in central Mexico, came to the states to visit. He's an Indian from central Mexico, had not been around a lot of medicines. He had a headache, and a very thoughtful person gave him some aspirin. Well in this case, what started as a very loving act, but without knowledge, became a very destructive act. He was given the aspirin, was told, take one, it'll help. Two will help a little more. So his logic just carried that on. If one helps a little, two helps more, the whole bottle will really help. And ended up in serious trouble in the hospital. Nearly died. You see, good intentions are not enough. No matter how good my intentions are, no matter how loving a guy I might be, you do not want me to perform heart surgery on you. In that case, love without knowledge would be fatal. You see, again, good intentions aren't enough. In our culture, unfortunately, we have this myth that when it comes to spiritual things and when it comes to relationships, knowledge is spontaneously generated. And it isn't. That's just not true. The the myth is that you'll automatically know what to do. What's the best thing? What's the loving thing? What's the right thing? It's just not true. For our love to be constructive, it must be... With knowledge, we need knowledge for our love to be effective. And knowledge comes from the Word of God. That's why it's so important that we read it, that we study it together, that we discuss it among ourselves, that we listen to teaching from it. We need to obey that knowledge. We cannot uh, pretend that we are loving and ignore the knowledge that God gives us in His Word. We've got to submit to that knowledge. But knowledge itself isn't enough. We've all known people who were filled with knowledge of Scripture. They knew their Bibles inside and out. But they still didn't know how to use it to love people. They used it as a hammer to dominate and oppress and control. Uh, Our knowledge of Scripture must be accompanied with insight into people. Into how they feel, how they change, what's really helpful and effective. When I was a, uh, a new believer, I led a guy to the Lord who had a serious substance Abuse problem. He went to a Christian counselor. And the counselor said, well, stop. Just stop. Don't do that anymore. Well, that was great counsel. That was exactly what he needed to do. But the problem was there was no appreciation for the depth of the struggle, for, for, the, for the, the, the power of his flesh, the power of that addiction for the frustration of coming back to God after failure, after failure, after failure, to the need for a loving community. And without these insights into real life, my friend despaired, gave up spiritually, walked away from his faith. You see, we need to bring knowledge, knowledge of the Word, and insight into life and into people and to bring these two together to love effectively. Paul says he wants them to grow in knowledge and insight so they can discern what is best, is the way this translation puts it. So they can discover what's best in the way they love each other. So that we can discover what's best in the way we love our spouse. Now if you've been married very long, you've discovered that sometimes you think this is the best way to love your spouse. But it doesn't work out. It doesn't come across that way. It's not understood like you intended it to be understood. It gets confused. And knowledge and insight is necessary to grow in our skills so that we're loving effectively. We discover what's best in the way to love our teenage son or daughter. We discover what's best in the way to love that, that, that person at work and how to share the gospel with them effectively. You know, maybe it's not to just uh, sneak a tract onto their desk and, and walk away. Maybe there's other more effective ways and we begin to explore and discover what is best, what really works. And what really works in, in loving that guy sitting next to you and going through his struggles with him and listening and supporting and encouraging other members of the body of Christ. We discover how to do that. We discover what's best. See, as we open ourselves to the Scripture and at the same time remain honest and responsive to the things that we're learning in life, God will use that to, to give us that skill, to show us how to really Love. Because that's what life is about. That's what He's called us for. That's the great adventure of life, is growing more and more skilled in our ability to love God, and as a result of that, growing more and more skilled in our ability to love other people. You see, that's what God has committed Himself to doing in our lives. Doesn't matter how intelligent you are or how intelligent you aren't. He's gonna teach you how to love with knowledge and insight. Doesn't matter what your background, what lessons you have to unlearn. He's going to take you through it. It doesn't matter how you view yourself. It is He who is going to accomplish these things. There's no room for discouragement and despair and and a sense of defeat because God will accomplish these things. All we are called to do is to depend on Him, to obey His Word, to walk through life with our eyes and ears and hearts open. And the result will be that our lives will be pure and blameless, is the way Paul puts it. In other words, we'll become more focused on the things that really matter. Other motives will begin to drop off. Our confusion, our mixed up lives will become more and more defined, more and more ordered and pure, and, and with less and less distraction. And our conduct will be filled with the fruit of righteousness. That is, our behavior will become more and more mature and loving and constructive. See, we will begin... To really grow, we'll begin to act more like saints. We'll learn how to love like Christ loves, giving ourselves, giving our time, our energy, our money, our, our hearts, our, our thoughts, our emotions, our whole selves to loving like Christ loves. We'll become saints, not in, not just in that we are set aside for a special purpose. But what we'll discover is that our conduct, our attitudes, our behavior will become more and more holy, more and more Christ-like. And the praise and the glory will go to God, Paul says. Because it's He who has done this in Christ Jesus. He has made us saints. St. Saint Harry, St. Chris, St. Gary. He is the one who... That has accomplished this. Let me read real briefly a passage from Ephesians. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ Jesus, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's pray. Lord, we are your workmanship. We admit that. We want to learn to trust you, to lean back on you, even when we're hanging off the cliff and it's terrifying. We want to respond to you as our Lord and Master, to obey you, to see you work in our lives, to teach us to love like you love. Lord, I pray that we would, uh, as a church, discover... Profoundly, the, the the meaning of the gospel in our lives. Trusting you in every area, every part of it. That we would grow in our passion for helping each other. Get a get, get a grasp on, on just how you love us. That we would grow in our passion for sharing you that good news with other people, both here and around the world. Lord, bond us together in a profound fellowship, because we passionately want to serve you as our Lord. We passionately want to to be your servants, taking the gospel, both to each other's lives, to those who haven't heard yet. Or we want to experience the just the delight that Paul experienced. Again, Lord, bring us to pray, not to worry, not to fret, not to suspect, but to pray, to give thanks to you, because you are the one who will accomplish these things. We know that. We depend on that in your name because of what you you did on the cross we pray amen